people, good morning. We are in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're a guest, we're delighted to have you here. It's our custom to stand uh, when we uh, read the scriptures, recognizing that these are not simply the words uh, penned by various men, but the Holy Spirit inspired these. So let's stand together, turn to 2 Timothy 3, and let's pray. Uh, Father, Spiritual things are revealed by the Holy Spirit and can only be discerned uh, by, his, uh, by His work. And so we ask for His ministry to us as we hear the Word and that You would give graces to both the one who speaks and to us who listen. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such People, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was those two men. You may take your seat. When Josh Hamilton was uh, playing as an outfielder for the Texas uh, Rangers, he fell off uh, the wagon. The sports website Deadspin posted numerous snarky comments about that. Uh, Hamilton's uh, night of uh, drinking was nothing compared to the behavior of many uh, professional athletes, but he was being ridiculed as a hypocrite. See, Hamilton was vocal about his faith in Christ and talked about the role it had played in breaking his addiction to both uh, heroin and alcohol. It turned out that Hamilton told his wife, his children, and made his team in Major League Baseball about his sobriety failure the day after it occurred. And then, of course, as you would expect, later photos appeared on the Internet some months uh, uh, passing, and he once again called a press conference and apologized Uh, to his team, his wife, his uh, children. Now just try to imagine what that was like. Just the conversations that took place, the shame you would have uh, in them, the pain. Just try to imagine that you were Josh Hamilton living through that. Would you even want to face people? Would you want to go outside and hear the ridicule? Would you really want to return Uh, to professional sports and know people are always going to look at you and think about uh, that night. Well, I don't know about you, but 
when I think about it, it's just enough to awaken fear and resolve never to let anything like that happen in my life. But fear and resolve are not enough to prevent moral failure. Now, Josh Hamilton is hardly alone. In fact, the frequency with which prominent Christians, leaders in the Christian church, have scandalous moral failures is, well, it's so common that people expect it as a regular part of the news cycle, the way you expect fires to break out in the West. And it raises a question for us, doesn't it? How can we claim that the gospel has the uh, power uh, to change lives, that it really works when there's so many leaders who fall in such scandalous uh, ways? As Josh Hamilton's experience illustrates, it only takes a moment of letting your guard uh, down. Moral moral failure is... uh, closer than we think. And that's why the New Testament warns us. Therefore, if anyone stands, let him take heed, lest he fall. We live in a time of profound moral failure. And uh, Paul, as he writes this last letter, is concerned uh, that we understand uh, this. As Paul's writing, uh, he, he writes not just to the moral failure that's happening in broadly in society, but he's writing specifically to the church. Just look closely at what he writes. In verse uh, 1 of our text, he begins with the word, but. He's picking up on the end of chapter 2, where he's warned Timothy about the false teachers that are at work in the church. Timothy's to correct them in the hopes that they will repent, although Paul's realistic and knows that they won't all respond. And then he says, but understand this. In the last days will be terrible times. And then he goes on to list 20 vices that characterize those times that will be increasingly uh, present. And this decline is clearly, Paul wants us to see it's in the church, because he adds these words in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness. In other words, these are people who appear uh, to be following Christ. They uh, appear uh, that way because, well, they participate in the life of the church. Now, you may ask, well, are we really living in the last days? Maybe you even wonder what that uh, means. Well, the prophets in um, the among Israel, viewed uh, time in two ways. One, there was the present age, the age that we're living in. And then there's the age to come, uh, when the Messiah would come and he would restore all things. But the prophets uh, foresaw something vaguely that's completely clear now, that the last days have begun with the coming of Jesus Christ. This is uh, what Peter's getting at when he stands up on the day of Pentecost and reads the words of Joel and says, Joel says that the outpouring of the Spirit upon God's people will happen in the last days. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews is getting at when he says, long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. In other words, the future is now. With Christ 
uh, coming, the last days uh, have uh, dawned. And they're evidenced by the presence of false teachers as well as the profound moral failure of the day. We must understand we live in a time of moral failure, a time of great evil. Jesus told us that it would be like this. And as distressing as it may be for us, we shouldn't be surprised, nor should we be hopeless. The New Testament, in fact, tells us that we should expect evil to intensify and get stronger and be more active and visible until Jesus returns a second time. Well, why would that be so? Well, it's because the spiritual forces of darkness uh, were profoundly defeated in Christ's uh, death. And now they know their time uh, is coming to an end. And so they're having their last hurrah. It's kind of like a football uh, game where one team, the winning team, is just so far ahead in their lead, it's impossible for the other team to catch up. And so the other team, in an act of spite, uh, will, well, they'll engage in as much unnecessary roughness as they can get away with to injure the other team, taking out their, their anger over how the game has gone. And so we can't be passive as if somehow we're going to avoid uh, temptation, as somehow uh, that what's happening around us isn't also happening uh, in the church. We can't think that we or anyone that we love is safe uh, from uh, this evil. And we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that we can isolate ourselves. If we all just moved to Idaho and set up a little community, we wouldn't be touched by this. Instead, what we need to do is we need to understand how it is that the gospel defeats evil and to seek to be salt and light in these dark times. And as uh, Paul describes these terrible times, he exposes the root cause as he writes about four loves. The root cause of these difficult times of moral and uh, spiritual decline is our disordered loves. Paul lists them. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of God. Now, this reminds me of a television show. Maybe you've seen it. A man is offered the opportunity to exchange places with someone else whose life is far more successful, has a more prestigious job, a great car, a fabulous home, and is married to a professional model who greets him every uh, evening for a night of pleasure. And even though the man had a pretty wife, she was up to her elbows in responsibilities uh, in the evenings. And uh, even though he had a modest home, a reliable car, a solid but ordinary uh, job, he traded places. In fact, he jumped at the opportunity to do that. And so the producers uh, follow him around through this day, and it is an amazing day. He goes to work, and people defer to him. Uh, he drives home in a Lamborghini. He arrives at this palatial home. He's greeted uh, by the model who gives him a uh, kiss and puts a hand into his hand a glass of wine that was poisoned. And he falls to the floor dying, and his wife comes out behind a curtain and says, I thought you had everything. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The root problem in the world, the root problem in other people, and in me and in you are our disordered loves. And those loves surface in our desires. I want to be a good parent and also want to be successful in my career. I want to be fit and I want to be able to indulge in food. You see the contradictions? And, you know, if I'm really honest, while I can love the wrong thing, mostly I just love good things in the wrong way more than I love God. And when I love myself or money or pleasure more than God, I inevitably sin against God and other people. It's no accident that love of self heads this list. Now, William Temple wrote a little book called Christianity in the Social Order, and he says, I am the center of the world I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Education uh, may make my self-centeredness less disastrous by broadening my vision the same way as a man who climbs up on a tower uh, can see further out to the horizon. But his vantage point is still with himself at the very center. I am the standard of reference. I'm the center of the world I see. As I experience my conflicting uh, desires and as I try to juggle them as best I can, they all seem reasonable to me because, well, uh, to be true to myself, to be the person I am, I have to give expression to my uh, desires. And without something outside of myself, outside of my desires, I can't even really find a way to choose uh, between them to figure out which ones I should say yes to and pursue and which ones I should say no to. And even with a moral standard outside of myself, whatever it might be, even if it's God's, I still find that while I from time to time love the wrong things, I love good things in the wrong way. I love them more than God. And this is what the Bible means by sin. Man curved in on himself. The British newspaper uh, man, Malcolm Muggeridge, speaks of the dark little dungeon of my ego. Sin is a twist of self-centeredness that imprisons us. Today, it's common to hear that if you're going to learn to love other people, you have to love yourself first. But you see what that is really. It's a license for, well, endless indulgence because the quest for self-love is endless. And by the time you finally learn to love yourself, well, you'll be playing golf over in Leisure World. That's Charles Crothammer uh, who wrote that in Time magazine. 
Well, what you love the most is your functional uh, God. Uh, And it's true regardless of your participation uh, in organized religion or your pursuit of any form of spirituality. What you love most, regardless of what you say about uh, God, is what is in fact functionally your God. And in this letter, the theme of this entire uh, letter that we call the book of 2 Timothy is Paul summoning Timothy to guard the gospel because the gospel alone can free us from our disordered loves. How can we be free of our disordered loves? And we can be free. Just how does this work? Well, the freeing truth of the gospel is light and it restores the knowledge of good and evil to us. It exposes darkness. It reveals what's truly good and what's actually evil. And the light of the gospel is brightest in Jesus Christ. He is entirely good. And goodness is attractive. Good food, good weather, good friends. They draw us. And so Jesus draws us in. His, his love, his uh, kindness draws us uh, to his purity, to his holiness. And it enables us to listen to the truth about ourselves and be honest. To stand in the light of his life is to see the truth about yourself. But the gospel's more uh, than uh, light. It's also the very power of God for salvation. It's the power to rescue us. The gospel is more than words. It's not less uh, than words, uh, but it comes with power. Paul says this in the letter to the Romans. He says the gospel is a word of power, and the word he uses about uh, power is the word dunamos, from which we get dynamite. In other words, the power of the gospel is explosive. It's the power to uh, destroy the old life and give us new life, to break up the heart of stone and to give us a soft heart, uh, to remove the stubbornness in us and give us a new mind and a new will that loves God. It has the power to break our slavery uh, to our love of self, our love of money, and our love of pleasure. It has the power to reorient and resize our desires and awaken within us a new love of God that enables us to put all other loves in place. Our love for God is dominant, then every other love shrinks. And God's truth is essential. The truth of the gospel is essential, but it's not enough by itself to prevent moral failure. It ought to be clear enough. If you just think about the church leaders whose scandals have, well, they've been in the headlines for a long time when they occurred. There's Mark Driscoll and uh, Mars Hill. There's Robbie Zacharias, Carl Lentz of Hillsong, and many other lesser-known pastors and lay leaders. They were immersed in the life of the church, weren't they? Many of them communicated the gospel to others. They certainly were immersed in it, and they still had scandalous moral failures. There are three other critical factors that the New Testament uh, says uh, plays a role in shaping our character. Actually, all three of these uh, arise out of the gospel. They are, well, I like to think of them as the ecosystem 
that the gospel creates. They are trials and difficulties and sufferings. That's one. They are relationships, and there's a prayer. All three of these are, in fact, found in this letter. They're part of Timothy's experience. Timothy is in the crucible. Here is this uh, man who, by God's odd choice, because he's timid, uh, he's retiring by nature, has to confront the false teachers in Ephesus. This inevitably means he's thrust into conflict, and he's going to experience opposition. In fact, uh, Paul says in this little phrase toward the end of chapter 2 that he will need to be willing to patiently endure evil. That is, evil from the hands of other people. Trials and difficulties and suffering are one of the things uh, that God uses to get the gospel deeper in our lives. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character. Well, just how does that work? Well, our trials, our suffering, uh, brings out uh, within us a certain response. And that response is either good, it produces good fruit, or it produces bad, rotten fruit and thorns. Those thorns and rotten fruit are those 20 vices. Uh, They're not all the vices that emerge uh, uh, there. I I don't know if pity was in the list. I don't think it was. A lot of us, that's where we go uh, when we suffer. Uh, But trials expose these. And in exposing these, underneath those are what loves actually are controlling us at the moment. It's what love that's got our heart in the midst of of suffering that causes us to produce either good or bad uh, fruit. And then there's prayer. Prayer is only possible because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has made it possible for us to approach uh, God and to be heard. And Paul, of course, opens this letter like, well, pretty much all of them, with a note about his being in prayer. He's been praying uh, for Timothy. And you'll remember that Jesus summoned Peter uh, to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew that Peter was going to experience an intense conflict of desires. Peter wanted to be loyal to Jesus. In fact, he boasts uh, that he's willing to lay down his life uh, for Jesus. But Peter's desire for self preservation led him to deny any connection to Jesus whatsoever. Jesus urged Peter to pray, but Peter wasn't able to do it. You see, the conflict in our hearts requires more than human resolve. We need divine uh, resources. It is not without reason that the New Testament urges us to watch and pray. The third element in the gospel ecosystem is the role that relationships play. We need people who will love us enough to encourage us, to challenge us, to walk beside us and hold us accountable to pursue what is good and what is best. And Paul Timothy has enjoyed a safe, uh, nurturing relationship that has both affirmed him and challenged him. 
And Paul has modeled for him what it means to love God and serve others ahead of self-love, the love of money and pleasure. And if you look through the New Testament, I mean, it's all over the letters of the New Testament that we are commanded to be involved in each other's uh, lives. The writer of Hebrews writes to us, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love. We need to be stirred up to love by others and good works, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day, that is the day of Christ uh, coming. You see, if you're not with other people, it's very hard to receive encouragement. It's very hard uh, to be stirred up, and it's very hard for you to stir other people up. If our uh, conflicting desires are to be put in their place, then we need to have thick relationships, counter-cultural relationships and models of living. We need to see people who choose to live for more than themselves and money and pleasure. The reordering of our desires doesn't just happen. You're not going to wake up one day and discover your desires have all gotten into the right size and shape. It's not, you do this once and you're done with it. It's lifelong. It's an everyday uh, pursuit. And it's easy to think you've done it, only to find out, as I did yesterday, I hadn't. Um, Dear parents, Are you as concerned for the spiritual development of your children as you are uh, to set them up for success in life? Every parent wants children who are well uh, behaved. And the moral development you desire uh, arises out of hearts that are drawn to God in love. You, You need to do more than simply instruct your children in what's right and wrong having them memorize the Ten Commandments and correct them. Oh, you need to do those things, of course. They need to hear the gospel from you, and they also need to see you living it out, especially when you fail. And there must be community standards. Uh, Paul, in in, uh, verse 5 of our text, says, avoid such people. What he means by that is not that the church is to avoid, or Timothy's to have nothing to do uh, with immoral, selfish people everywhere. Uh, no, he's writing about those who are in the church. He's writing especially about those false teachers uh, who themselves are preying on those, awakening desires uh, in them that lead them to sin, that fuel their passions. And this means all of us have to exercise discernment and the elders especially must exercise church discipline. Elders have a duty to guard the flock of God from false teachers and from those who are toxic influence in the lives of others. We should not expect to be free of all moral failure in the church. I often quip that the one thing that must be true of you to join the church is to be a sinner. Right. Spectacular failures occur because small failures are not brought into the light. This is especially 
true in the lives of leaders, and it's especially sadly true in the lives of uh, pastors. You see, it's because of the lack of deep relationships mostly that uh, these small failures, these small moral failures, aren't brought into the light, and people don't walk uh, with the leaders uh, in them. But when failure takes place, especially smaller failures, but yes, the spectacular ones, then it needs to be faced. It needs to be owned up to. It needs to be addressed. And the goal of church discipline is always not to punish somebody. It's rather for the glory of Christ uh, to see them brought to repentance and restored to a right relationship uh, with Christ. There's a wonderful story called Babette's Feast. It's about a strict, dour, fundamentalist community in Denmark. And Babette works as the cook for two elderly uh, sisters who have no idea that once she was the chef for nobility back in France. Babette's dream is to return uh, to her beloved uh, home city, Paris. And every year she buys a lottery ticket in the hopes that uh, she will uh, win enough money to go home. And every night, her austere employers demand that she cooks the same dreary meal, boiled fish and potatoes, because they say Jesus commanded, take no thought of food and drink. One day, the unbelievable happens. Babette wins the lottery. The prize is 10,000 francs. It's a small fortune. And... It also coincides that it's the anniversary of the founding of the community. And so Babette asked if she could prepare a French dinner uh, with all the trimmings for the entire village. And at first, the townspeople refused. No, it would be a sin to indulge in such rich uh, food. But she begs, and finally they relent. As a favor to you, we'll allow you to cook us this French dinner. But the people secretly vowed not to enjoy it, instead to occupy their minds with spiritual things, believing that God won't blame them for eating this sinful meal if they don't enjoy it. Well, she begins her preparations, and caravans of exotic foods arrive in the village, along uh, with quail and barrels of fine wine. And finally, the big day comes, the village uh, gathers, and the first course is an exquisite turtle soup. And the diners force it down, without enjoyment. And all they, they usually eat in silence, conversation begins to take off. And then the wine comes out. Well, it's one of the finest vintages in all of France, and the atmosphere changes. Somebody smiles, someone giggles, an arm drapes over the chair around somebody else, and someone's heard to say, after all, didn't Jesus say, we should love one another? And these austere, pleasure-feeling people are giggling and laughing and slurping and praising God for their many years together. This pack of Pharisees is transformed into a loving community through the gift of a meal. One of the two sisters goes into the uh, kitchen to thank Babette. She says, oh, how we'll miss you when you return uh, to Paris. And she replies, I won't be returning to Paris because I spent everything on the feast. It's only an encounter with love 
that can reorder the loves of our hearts. Like Babette, Jesus set a feast, a feast of forgiveness, of acceptance, of reconciliation, of new life and new purpose through his death. And if you haven't tasted this feast, oh, what awaits you? May today be the day when you accept his invitation to the feast. Those of you who've been to the feast before, this table is a picture of that feast. This table's not the feast. The feast is what Jesus has done for you. As you come to this table this morning, come asking God to reorder your desires, that your loves would be centered on God first, and that having centered there, having love for him be dominant, then you may enjoy all other things. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. And we confess that we might be more like the people in that story than we'd like to think that we're above all the temptations of pleasure and money and that we're free of self-love. Oh, Lord, we cry out to you that you lead us not into temptation and that you grip our hearts, Lord, with the power of the gospel, that you would be our supreme love. For we ask this in Christ's name.